The Old Testament reading is Micah 6, verses 1 through 8. This can be found in your Pew Bibles on page 932. Micah 6, 1 through 8. The Lord's case against Israel. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading today comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 18 through 31, and that can be found on page 1143 in your pew Bible. It starts at the bottom of 1142. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, the power, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. 
But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's, uh, let's just take a moment and pray before we get started. Holy Spirit, we quiet ourselves and ask for a word from you. That the wisdom of God would become clear to us, standing against the wisdom of the world. And that we would find ourselves um, called into that wisdom, into your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So my friend Heather got me this book for Christmas uh, that's called The Unsettling of the Word. Settling Chosen, because it is about settlers having the power over the Bible. Um, It is about reclaiming the Bible from the dominant powers, and I haven't read much of it yet, uh, but I looked up today's, my text today was in it, and there was a little essay in response to it, um, and it was really poignant. Here's a quote from it. It says, Line up next week's casualties. Is it a mass shooting, garment factory collapse, another hurricane, military invasion, a run on anxiety and depression? You name it, line them up, and they'll be mowed down by the wisdom of the world. Go on, show me a wisdom that will get us out of this. It felt to me like such an apt description of our predicament so many different kinds of atrocities, and we're not that surprised when a new one happens every week, all wrought by the wisdom of the world. That hope mixed with cynicism in the last line, go on, show me a wisdom that will get us out of this. And in response, I hear the words of Isaiah forty-three nineteen: Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness. I will make a way. From Fleming Rutledge in her book, um, The Crucifixion, asks, who would ever have imagined that that new thing would be the cross? And her answer is, no one. Absolutely no one reading Isaiah 43 was expecting the wisdom of God to be the cross. 
And even now, it's hard for us to grasp. You know, from our vantage point in a largely Christian city, in a largely Christian country, at the tail end of an era where Christians have held all the power, it's hard to imagine how much scandal, how much of a scandal the cross was. You know, we see a hundred crosses a day on necklaces and t-shirts and paintings, church buildings and wispy Facebook posts. But did you know that it took the early church a hundred years before they made the cross a central symbol of the faith? The thing was too gruesome. Even the church kept it at a distance. Philip Yancey said that it didn't become central until everyone who had seen a real crucifixion had died. When someone was crucified, they weren't just punished or killed. They were degraded, and that was the point. Sometimes people will compare the cross to an electric chair, saying, you know, what if we wore electric chairs around our neck, our necks? And that's a pretty good comparison, except that the electric chair still aimed, for the most part, to keep the dignity of the executed intact. The cross's chief goal was to destroy that dignity, to render the crucified subhuman. It was an animal's death specifically designed to prolong the pain and the shame of the experience with as many people as possible looking on. The victim held high so that the public could play their part in the jeering and mocking of the crucified. The Jews saw it as a curse. Deuteronomy 21:23 says that anyone who hangs on a tree is under God's curse. And the Romans would only use it for foreigners. It was too depraved for any Roman citizen. They were never crucified. The whipping, the mockery, the nakedness, they were all part of the demeaning process. You know, it strikes me as kind of interesting um, that Jesus in, in our movies and paintings is almost always wearing a loincloth when in reality he would have been naked. It's as if even at the distance of thousands of years we can't handle the shame of what happened to him. Isaiah 52 and 53 describe it for us. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by humankind, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. You know, it's no wonder that Paul had to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Who really would have believed that salvation could come like this? It's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, Paul says. And it's hard even still for us to grasp the depth of it. Our culture is so removed from that, from theirs. Um, This is a really intense comparison 
but I think it's important. Fleming Rutledge says that the closest thing she could come up with to a crucifixion is the killing of Matthew Shepard. And if you remember that, Matthew Shepard was gay and he was beaten and tied to a fence and abandoned. And his, attacker, his attackers did everything they could to strip him of his dignity, just like Jesus on the cross. James Cone, the African-American theologian, calls us to remember the many lynchings of American history. Again, they were intended to dehumanize and to terrify. He says, the cross and the lynching tree, they need each other if we're to understand either one. The fence and the lynching tree. That's how we should understand the cross. Like, I hope you can feel the revolt and disgust. That's what makes the cross a stumbling block and foolishness. How could salvation ever come from that? Of course it's foolishness that the almighty, omnipotent one would voluntarily undergo such torment and then call it salvation. But Paul says, this horror, Christ crucified, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Not like the wisdom of the world that's concerned with bigger and better and higher and stronger and faster and more. This is a wisdom that goes all the way to the bottom, to the depths of shame for the sake of love. And in doing so, it unmasks all of our quests for greatness. And the Corinthians had forgotten the wisdom of the gospel and gotten wrapped up in the wisdom of the world again. And they were jockeying for position in all sorts of different ways. They were boasting about which teacher they followed. You know, I follow Paul. Well, I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. And therefore, I'm better than you. The, to the point where Paul had to say, like, I'm glad I didn't baptize more of you, so you couldn't boast about it. They were bragging about their sexual ex exploits. They were arguing about points of doctrine. Can we eat meat sacrificed to idols? Should every man be circumcised, brandying their intellectual prowess and their sense of freedom? They were suing each other and cheating one another. They were bragging about their spiritual gifts as if they were some sort of conquest and talking over one another in their worship meetings. Even communion had become a time to mark out the haves versus the have-nots with the rich overeating and getting drunk while the poor got nothing. Like the disciples asking who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They were trying to measure it out with whatever they could find. Doesn't sound that different than the history of the church, really. How much do we divide over which teacher we follow? Over which doctrine is right? The Corinthian spats are made of the same stuff as the atrocities we have seen inside the church and out. How much violence have we done in the name of squabbles about who is the greatest? And I caught myself in the same way of thinking this week um, on a smaller scale 
uh, I was on a retreat with some men who didn't believe in women in office, um, which I sometimes forget is a thing. And, <laughs> um, and I had to wrestle down, the whole time, wrestle down this impulse to want to prove myself, prove that I'm somehow wiser or more pious or whatever, just to prove that I'm right. Like, I was excited to beat them at video games. Like, somehow that meant something. Is that not the wisdom of the world? Like, Jesus, of course you love all of us, but which one is better? And Jesus says, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you have to be the least. Not that you have to grovel and think of yourself as a worm. That's not it. But this jockeying for position is so unimportant. And taken to its extreme, it's deadly. Paul calls the Corinthians away from the wisdom of the world. Paul says, Christ crucified. That is the center. The greatest become the least. It is the very opposite of this king of the mountain kind of stuff. Show me a wisdom that will get us out of this. It is a wisdom that refuses to play the game. It is the wisdom of the cross. And the cross is the epitome of this one-upmanship. It is the best of the best of both the religious leaders and the state. United in power, to demean God in mockery and violence. And God allowed it to happen. Christ walked into the fray in the weakness and vulnerability of love. And they stripped him naked, spat on him, mocked him, and murdered him, did their best to demean and destroy him. And he forgave them. It's so weak. It's so meek, it can almost make you angry. But it is a wisdom that exposes the violence of the heart of the wisdom of the world. And at the same time, disarms it. You know, once they had done their worst to him, what more could they do They are only standing there left with the blood of God on their hands. Their violence exposed. And there's nothing left to be done. And even that is forgiven. Because the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The foolishness of God wiser than human wisdom a wisdom that refuses to climb up over the bodies of others but stoops down low to lift them up. This is a wisdom that goes down and down until there is nothing left but love. Paul's answer to the Corinthian problems, the Corinthian problems is that they just believe the gospel. That then they can stop clamoring for the top spot. Because love is really the only thing that remains. 
your lawsuits to defend your rights, he says, why not rather be cheated? Why not rather be wronged? Love one another. Eating meat? Go ahead. Unless it's going to hurt someone else, then don't. Your freedom is less important than your love. Spiritual gifts? Great. But even the best ones are nothing without love, only a clanging symbol, meaningless noise. Great arguments? Fabulous. But all your knowledge is only a dim reflection in the mirror. It's only partial and it will pass away while only love will remain. Even giving all you have to the poor? Beautiful. But without love? Nothing, he says. But with love, it is everything. Because love is the cross, and it is also the resurrection. It is the seed lost in the dirt before it becomes a mighty tree. Because what the cross did was free us for love. It exposed the wisdom and power of the world as bankrupt. And it flipped the world on its head. So we can stop trying so hard. We can stop pushing one another around. We can stop building ourselves up. We can just stop and stand on Christ and Christ alone. All the violence that we've done has been forgiven. All the striving has been shown to be empty. There is nothing left but love. And it's a new reality for those who will believe it. It is the power of God to set us free. So be free. Be free to live a life of gratitude and joy. Be free to let go of all those things that you think make you important. Be free to stand up to the darkness, knowing that even in the deepest of darkness, the light of Christ is still there. The darkness will not overcome it. Be free to confess and be forgiven. Like Wendell Berry says, be free to laugh even though you've considered all the factors. Be free to love, to celebrate, to rejoice. As Tony said to me this morning, to live a life of thanks and amen. Let's pray. Lord, teach us what it means that you have done it all and that there's nothing left for us to do than to join in in the wide open space of grace, receiving it for ourselves, extending it to others, rejoicing and celebrating living from this place of freedom. Because of the foolishness of your cross.
In Jesus' name, amen.